0: Well that's a good prayer that we've been singing as we come to our passage which is in the last book of the Bible in Revelation. We've had it read to us. We're in Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 17. And uh, the churches are a mixed bunch that we're looking at in these two chapters, these letters to these churches. And I think probably um, this one is the, the most mixed uh, hence uh, called it, I changed the title a little bit over the weekend. Some of you saw it on Facebook, we realised it's moved on a bit, calling it now the mixed church. The mixed church. And most churches are mixed. And so looking at this this evening will keep us on our toes and make us thoughtful and prayerful. I imagine a, a fort. Uh, upstairs They're holding out... Against the enemy, they have their shields to cope with what comes in, they have their bows and their arrows, and they're defending with uh, every effort they can their castle with their lives. And downstairs, some have invited in the enemy for a cup of tea and cake, despite what the intents and the endeavours of the enemy are. A mixed situation. And it's a little bit like that as we go to Pergamon and we look at the letter that we have here. And the Spirit wants the churches to hear this letter. Verse 17, we have this repeated phrase through these passages. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the lessons for Pergamon are lessons for all the churches. We may remember, if we were here last week, the the general pattern, description of Jesus, diagnosis of the situation, there's a direction as to the way forward, there's prospects or destination, you could call it, I suppose, if you wanted to keep your D's together. And that pattern will follow through for all of the letters. We're not going to sort of itemise it in that way every time, we're going to vary it. And as we go through um, this evening, we're going to notice a, a number of things and uh, we're going to follow it through in six points actually this evening and we're going to start off as we think of Pergamum, the church there we're, we're going north in, in Asia Minor that's Turkey, we've gone up upwards it's really a, a sort of a horseshoe shape that we follow actually we've gone up, up I think this is the highest one of the, the ones that we follow and uh, we're thinking to begin with about their Lord their Lord each of the letters starts with a description of Jesus and we might be rather tempted sometimes to fast track to what was wrong and what was right but these are given and uh, it's always good for churches to be directed to Jesus and his character and it seems to me that so often the, the aspect of the character and person of Jesus in the start of each of these letters is, is quite tailored and specific and helpful to the church in its situation. Well, it's a very striking one that we have for Pergamum, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword. It points to the authority and the justice of Jesus. Jesus. We found out last week that there's often a link to chapter 1, I didn't think of having that hymn, we just had uh, the second of the one that that we had, At Your Feet We Fall, I wish I thought of it last week as well because it's very much on chapter 1 and uh, a lot of the letters connect to chapter 1 and you have that here um, in verse 16 of chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And I think this could be tailored to Pergamum. I'll just say this a little bit tentatively. I saw it online. It was online in John's notes from New Life Church. I I didn't track down whether New Life Church is in this country or elsewhere. And I haven't found out what John said in his notes in the other things I've looked at. I I like to find it in more than one place and in something quite authoritative. But the rest of what John said in his notes sounded very good. And um, he said this, it it sounds very plausible to me, that um, the, 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 the city of Pergamum, uh, was not only a free city, which was quite an honour to be stated as a free city by Rome, which meant you could choose your own leaders, but it was given a status which translated from the Greek is translated the right of the sword. The right of the sword. Which meant that the, provisional, the provincial governor could make decisions on capital punishment. Well, if that was the case, and if that was being implemented as it it was against Christians, that capital punishment, that execution, then wouldn't it be encouraging to be reminded of Jesus' ultimate power and authority? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. More authoritative than the freedoms gained by Pergamon because how well it was getting on with the rest of Rome it would have been encouraging to them in their defence of truth standing for the truth and I think it also might have been thought provoking for them where some amongst them were very deliberately and blatantly going against the word of Christ it was a dangerous thing to be doing So we're introduced to their Lord. And then as we follow down, we find out a bit more about their environment. Their environment. We move on to what Jesus knows about them. Remember, this is a pattern in these letters where Jesus says, I know. And here we see he knows their environment. He knows what they have to put up with. He knows their situation and their setting. And I think that's very encouraging in itself, that Jesus knows their environment. He knows the if you like cultural air that they breathe. <coughs> and see how it's described though? Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is, that's where you dwell, that's your environment. And we might think, well, it must be something like uh, Mordor, uh, Lord of the Rings. There's Mount Doom, there's lots of darkness, it's ruled by Saron. There's everywhere doom and gloom. But Pergamon's a sophisticated city. A different website I came across had this ad which uh, pulls together a lot about uh, Pergamum that we know and most of this is uh, backed up in other things I've seen. This is Pastor Russ Kennedy who wrote this. Sounds American to me. But this is the way it summarised it in an ad for Pergamum. I think it's quite helpful. Come and visit Pergamum. This beautiful city sits on like a crown on top of the hill. We are the capital of our province with the wonder of the Roman Imperium and the residence of the proconsul. We boast one of the largest libraries in our world with over 200,000 books. Come and see where parchment was first made. Our theatres are the latest with productions rivaling the best in Greece. No matter what your taste in fun may be, we have it. From the pursuits of the mind to the pleasures of the flesh. Come to see our festivals and join in with the offering of incense to our Caesar. Join in with our whole populace in publicly testifying to our loyalty to him. Come and worship in our temples. Our altar to Zeus is unmatched. We are a leader in the worship of the God of healing. Come here to feel the beneficent power flowing from the rod entwined serpent. We are Pergamon. We are loyal. We are modern. We are proud. Come and see why. Loyal, modern, proud, Satan's throne. That's the way it's described. We know that ultimately Jesus is on the throne. But um, it seems as though Satan is just holding so much sway over the minds and activities of the city of Pergamum. Well, maybe in your street or your family or your workplace or your college, it sometimes feels like uh, Satan is on the throne. That's, that's your environment, what you're battling in and living as a Christian in. Well, take heart that Christ knows your environment. He knows your environment. And as we carry on down, we see their faithfulness. We see their faithfulness. Some there were faithful. A lot were faithful. Um, Let's not overlook this. Jesus doesn't overlook this. He mentions the positives first in these letters. It's as if he's especially looking for the positives, eager for the positives, wanting to endorse the strengths. And this is how it's described then in verse 13. Yet you hold, despite your environment, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my face. That's quite a description, isn't it? You hold fast to my name, you did not deny my faith. So these people were under pressure, but they didn't buckle. It's so easy, isn't it when the when the heat is on to deny Jesus, even Peter did. We read that in the gospels. but here. The people he's talking of at the moment, they they didn't deny. They held fast to the name of Christ. Uh, The Roman temples uh, weren't just places of worship. They were also where a lot of business was done. To be in in the temple was where transactions were made, favourable terms were made. It was good commercially to be involved with the life of the temple. And often as the day went on and the evening on, the entertainment developed and the entertainment would be immoral entertainment. And revelry would follow. That was part of the package of the life of Pergamum. But some of them didn't join in. They stayed away, they stayed clear. Or they went at an early stage before it got unsavoury. Jesus comments in what he says to be written on one particular man, Antipas. Remember last week we talked about the first um, martyr outside of the New Testament documents that we're aware of being Polycarp at Smyrna. Well, there, here's another one within the New Testament documents who lost his life. And it carries on in verse 13 even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And I imagine as they heard this read, you know, they could picture his face. You know, they knew who this was. We don't, we just see Antipas, odd names, they knew his face. And perhaps they could remember the, the threatenings that were happening to Antipas because he wouldn't sort of toe the line and maybe they saw him get marched off and maybe they were there at the execution or the news soon dealt to them as the of the execution of Uncle Antipas in the life of the church who had died. And he'd been in a faithful witness and some are of similar ilk here at Pergamum. See, the upstairs, if you like, have been battling on faithfully for the truth. And if your, your, your street, your workplace, your, your common room feels like Satan's throne, be faithful, resist, steer clear of what's not good. Hold fast to the name of Christ as following the positives of Pergamum. That's following the upstairs of the fort, if you like. But it was a, a mixed church, as our title says. And so there is another part of the story. And we come on to their compromise. Their compromise. So it's now for the negative. The situation was was different in other parts of the church. Verses 14 and 15 tell us. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Some held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That had reared its head at Ephesus, but they had resisted. That wasn't the case here at Pergamum. The teaching of Balaam is another way of describing it. I think it's the same teaching. And in the teaching of Balaam, it's taken you back to an earlier book in the Bible, to the book of Numbers. And Balaam was hired by the king of Moab, Balak. And he was hired to curse Israel. (coughs) Uh, Despite several attempts in Numbers 22 to 24, he was sort of pretty mute in terms of being able to curse. He could only bless Israel despite his best efforts and trying to make some money through it. Afterwards, it seems, he tried a different strategy. It comes out a little bit in chapter 25 of Numbers and a verse or two in Numbers 31. Some of the attractive ladies of Moab were sent amongst the Israelites and these seduced some of them. Before long they were committing sexual immorality and worshipping idols at banquets. And something similar was happening here at Pergamum. They'd resisted perhaps the onslaught but there was another one of Satan's tactics and some were being caught by that. Some of them were teaching that it was okay to take part in idolatrous parties, that it was okay to be sexually immoral. Satan has more than one line of attack you know we, we can't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And so they were compromising. Well, are we compromising? Or some of us? Sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage is very prevalent in our society. A Little is thought ill of it. Is it creeping into the churches? Idolatry is very prevalent in our society. Uh, sometimes much more subtle these days than perhaps in Pergamon's days. And difficult to pick up in ourselves and others. Money, possessions status, pleasure put before God. Sometimes it is perhaps more obvious people start to worship a different God, dethrone Christ and put their trust in something else. Well, people there were carrying out both. uh, Presumably in a very clear un- incontrovertible way demonstrating that in their lives and they were teaching that it was okay that others should do the same should copy them and as churches we need don't we to keep watch that the values of the culture around us don't sort of backwash into the church flood the church with idolatry and immorality A church cannot sit content while its people are clearly involved with immorality and idolatry. There was compromise at Pergamum, and Jesus draws their attention to it. And so we go on to their need, the direction that Jesus gives. What what does Christ direct this church to do, this mixed church, this compromised church? Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Realise. Wake up to it. Be convicted. Change your mind. Turn around. Let things be different. Act differently as a whole church it is interesting it said to the whole church so not all the church were involved with these things but the whole church is told to repent and react the church needed to rid itself of this teaching and of this way of life therefore repent Well this can be one of the most difficult areas of of church life but we, we are responsible, churches are responsible as a whole if people amongst them as professing Christians continue to live lives that are compromised and are influencing others to do so. It doesn't mean you don't befriend those whose lifestyles are plainly out of kilter with the word. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 would lead us to be friendly with unbelievers of different backgrounds. It doesn't mean that we don't want professing Christians uh, to be restored and come back. That is lovingly a big concern where there is any straying away. But those who blatantly pursue idolatry and immorality, well, they shouldn't have positions in the church. They shouldn't be given a platform to share their views. They shouldn't be seen as in fellowship with the church. They shouldn't be treated as brothers and sisters in the spiritual family all the while they are persisting and pursuing this line of thought and trying to influence others in the same direction. A clear stance needs to be taken by churches in these situations. It's connected with what we sometimes call church discipline. Jesus calls them, their need is to repent To repent, the church as a whole. And Jesus makes clear that if the church does not deal with them, that he will. We carry on in verse 16. Therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the authoritative justice of Christ which is usually rever- re, um, reserved for his enemies will be used um, for those who profess to be part of his church but who are blatantly going against his will in their lives of immorality and idolatry. He said, I will turn again. If you don't deal with them, I will deal with them. And although we have a, such a compassionate saviour, we were thinking of that this morning as we sang that song that compassion him although we have such a compassionate saviour he's not a saviour who tolerates blatant defiant ongoing sin we we shall see it in the next letter there's some connections with Thyatira here you see it with that big shocking event in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira have lied to the Holy Spirit and the Lord deals with them in judgement And they're carried out of the room. Passed away. You see it in 1 Corinthians 11, where the abuse of the Lord's Supper was leading to some sickness. So there is compromise, and there is a need to repent, to realize the authoritative justice of Christ in the situation. So we have five of the things so far, their Lord, their environment, their faithfulness, their compromise. Those downstairs, sort of having tea with the enemies, while upstairs they were battling it out. Their need to repent, to, to, to push out the enemy, and to push out those who are wanting the enemy in. And then we come lastly, and it is so encouraging, isn't it, that in even in such a mixed situation. The Lord encourages kindly those who are obedient with great prospects and he talks about their future. What was the future of those who remain faithful? Those who repent, those who side with Christ. Well there was two wonderful things and they're in verse seventeen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now there's different views on what these two things are and you can feel free to pursue them in the books and so forth if you want. I don't generally find it helpful to spill out too many views to you when we come to these messages. But there are different views, especially on the second one. The first, let's go to the first. First, to him who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna. The manna. I was also in Numbers. That's one of the positive things in Numbers, isn't it? And Exodus. God's provision. Daily bread given to meet their need. The food and feasts that they needed. Manna. Why a hidden manna? Well, I I was wondering... I was wondering if the hidden manna was sort of talking about the ark I I didn't read this elsewhere so this isn't even in John's notes of New Life Church but the hidden manna could it be sort of creating the specialness that some of the manna was stored in the ark and carried as a memento of uh, the wonderful provision of God through those years that just creates a specialness about it maybe pointing to Christ the bread of life which believers have satisfied in, pointing forward to the, uh, the banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the final feast which we have ahead of us. Be faithful. Resist. Keep going. Manner is ahead. I will give him the hidden manna. The second... And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So a white stone uh, with a, a new name on it. Possibly the name of Christ, later in the book, names written on the forehead, sense of belonging, belong to Christ, that's one understanding. Uh, Another way of understanding it, which I felt quite drawn to, because it sort of fits the situation so well, is that that a stone was given, a white stone was given to the victors at the races and the games. And they got given a a stone with their name on it, and that stone uh, gave them entrance to the banquets, the sort of victory receptions. And so if you, you, you won, you conquered, you've got given your ticket, really, your white stone, and then when you wanted to go to the, the sort of sumptuous banquet, there you go, you could sort of hand in your ticket and you got a free pass. Well, that seems to no authority on these things, but it, it fits in so well with the situation. And what a big encouragement. Those who were finding it life-hard Because they weren't joining in the temple with its prophets, with its worship, with its excesses, with its license, with its worship of Caesar. And they were finding it hard. They were having to stay away. And Jesus says, those who are faithful and those who are conquer will have a better banquet, have got a better invitation, have got a better get together in the future. And maybe you are strongly drawn to join friends in you what you know is not good and not honouring to the Lord. And maybe to go to parties or stay at parties when they get to the stage where things that happen aren't moral and aren't decent and aren't honouring to the Lord. And you look so silly and you look so standoffish that you don't go or that you head off early and this comes as an encouragement to you, keep faithful. You have a better feast in front. You have a better invitation. You have a better get-together. Remain faithful. So, the mixed church, the the upstairs and the downstairs of the thought, partly faithful, partly compromising. Some lessons in it for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's sing our last song, encouraging one another to press on in faithfulness and to view what is ahead. Fight the good fight with all your might. Christ is your strength and Christ your right. Lay hold on life and it shall be your joy and crown eternally. finding these letters very uh, spiritually insightful and uh, relevant and uh, challenging and we pray that your spirit will help us to have ears to hear the lessons for us as individuals and the churches we're linked with we pray in the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen